I need you to like musicals. I need you to like musicals. I need you to like musicals. I know you think they're sappy and bland. And you hated La La Land. But I gotta make you understand They can be profound and beautiful So I need you to like musicals Look, I never said this was gonna be a weekly podcast Sue me, sue me, what can you do me? I'm busy Welcome, folks, to I Need You to Like Musicals Sorry for the lack of episodes for the two, maybe three weeks I don't know, maybe four weeks Look, I, I've got finals. I'm in the middle of finals. I'm in the middle of applying to grad school. And my personal life is in flames, just like it was at the last episode. No change on that front. And I'm gonna continue to keep that vague. Because it's none of your fucking business, quite frankly. Um, anyway, um, do the acoustics sound different? Do not adjust your AirPods. I am in a different space for the first time in the history of this podcast. I am not in my studio in Van Nuys, California. I am currently house-sitting for my aunt and uncle and feeding their cat, Lily, who has no interest in coming anywhere near me. Uh, won't even take a treat from me when I say her name in a sing-song way that I was instructed to. So it's really like there's no cat at all. But uh, I'm, I'm, I'm making sure that cat doesn't go outside, more or less. I don't know. Um, this is the house of my aunt and uncle. It is uh, right near my actual house. It's uh, really just a walking distance. And I've been house-sitting at this house for my whole life, more or less. Uh, came here as a child uh, and house-sat for them in my 20s. A uh, very different experience house-sitting for them in my 20s. Uh, I have the letters of disappointment to prove it from them uh, about... Uh, why did you have a party here and fill the trash cans full of beer and not do the one thing you were supposed to, which was clean up the dog shit on the front lawn? Um, by contrast, uh, what I did today was I drove home from work and stopped at the uh, Ralph's and picked up some groceries and just had a quiet night at home by myself here uh, and made an elaborate dinner for myself of chicken parmigiana and pasta al limone and... Uh, now I'm just sitting here recording a podcast about musical theater. You know, times have changed. Uh, you know, the arc of history is... God, this is a shitty episode uh, so far. You know, another thing that's different, uh, and maybe that's playing into this, this is the first episode, and I need you to like musicals history, that is not fueled by an energy drink. I did not have an energy drink, and the reason I did not is because it is currently the middle of the night. And I'd like to be able to sleep at some point. I don't think it would be a great idea to have an energy drink. I did have a Coca-Cola Classic, I should tell you that. A Mexican Coke, as a matter of fact. One in a bottle. I feel like there are helicopters. I don't know if that's coming through. But Jesus, there's a... They call it Vietnamese for a reason. Um, a lot of helicopters here in Van Nuys. Vietnamese, get it? Nobody really calls it Vietnamese. Let's talk about some news, some Broadway news of the week. Uh, Waitress, the musical, the movie, is in theaters now for five days only. A limited engagement. Actually, today is day two, or tonight was day two of that five-day engagement. So 
you've got three days to go. This probably won't be released for a couple of days. So you may be hearing this on the last possible day to see Waitress, the musical, the movie. Check your local listings. It's one of those, uh, do you remember they used to do this a few years ago, maybe a decade ago? They, they did it with the Neil Patrick Harris, Stephen Colbert company, Sondheim's company, where it's the filmed play, and they show it in a movie theater, but it's like a limited thing for a weekend, and they act like it's their, your only chance you'll ever get to see it, but then eventually it can be gotten elsewhere, and everybody calms down. Or maybe I'm just telling myself that to make myself feel better, because I, in fact, turned down an opportunity to see Waitress, the musical, the movie, this very evening with a group of people, half of whom I knew and half of whom I did not know. I did not have the stomach for interacting socially this evening, to be honest. I've never seen the show Waitress. I've heard a few of the songs. Uh, I've heard that song, She Used to Be Mine. Some people sing it at work. And I, I felt like I was, I, I'm in a raw place, so I didn't need to be hearing that kind of melancholy shit. I enjoy Sarah Bareilles and the songs that she writes. I found the movie that it's based on, the source material, the Carrie Russell movie, to be uh, somewhat depressing. And uh, not just because the filmmaker was murdered and supporting actress. Uh, check out Adrian, the documentary on HBO. Is this all over the place or am I, am I on fire? I can't tell. Uh, hang on one sec. You know what? I'm going to say that I was on fire as evidenced by the coughing fit that I just had. It was just uh, too much uh, gold. Uh, I uh, couldn't take it. Anyway, uh, the two musicals for this week, as you know from reading the title of the episode, are Guys and Dolls and Man of La Mancha. So today is Positivity Day, guys. I like both of these. Both of today's musicals are solid B pluses. I give these both a B plus. We don't have a grading system here on I Need You to Like Musicals. Uh, that would be stupid, right? And it would be weird to say, uh, yeah, C minus for Jekyll and Hyde. That is the grade that Jekyll and Hyde would get. But, um, I, or, you know, I, oh, I give this one four Bermuda shirts or whatever the fuck. We're not going to do a rating system. Uh, that's uh, Things like, like that are ruining uh, the world. Rotten tomatoes. Anyway, um, what my point is, god damn it. <laughs> what, what I am going to do that's new is I'm going to try to sort of summarize the stories of these musicals as I go along talking about them. Because I have found that some people do listen to this uh, without having seen the shows. And so I'll give you a nice summary. I will be spoiling the shit out of them, but I've been doing that anyway. You know, you don't want to, uh, if you, I recommend everybody see these musicals uh, before you hear me talk about them. But in case you didn't, I'll let you know what they're about so you don't feel like you're in the dark. I guess I've been trying not to do that because I, I don't like it when I read a review and they spend a whole lot of time summarizing the plot. I always feel like I like skip, skip, skip through that um, <clears throat> and just get to the, uh, you know, how do you feel about it, Leonard Moulton? Jeez. Why are you wasting all this space telling me what it's about? You have to put every single movie in the universe into this book, so why are you, you know. Let's save, let's save some time. But I will summarize them as my point. Jesus, can I, am I, can I, can I even do this? I feel clouded in there. I, nothing is really wrong uh, at the moment, anyway. Uh, it's just, I'm not used to doing this not hopped up on my Celsius. I, uh, I'm in withdrawal here, you guys. This is weird. This is not going well. Let's try to get it back. Let's try to spin this into a place that is good. Oh, God. All right, let's talk about guys and dolls first, because I feel like that's definitely the one more people are into. Uh, there's a vibe, right, to Guys and Dolls, and, uh, you know, the, the, watching it this week, I did watch the movie, which is not a good entry point, guys, the movie, 
of the of guys and dolls is not very good. It is a star-studded affair, uh, but I think it's sort of generally understood by the uh, musical theater intelligentsia that it's not a good representation of Guys and Dolls. Guys and Dolls is very theatrical and energetic, and the movie is kind of lying on its side and dull, and there are some strange casting decisions. We'll talk all about it. But the vibe of Guys and Dolls reminds me very much of the Italian restaurant where I work as a singing waiter. The whole thing of these old-time hoods and the way that they talk. Uh, it could be because there's a big mural of Frank Sinatra in front of this restaurant and that he drank there. And Frank Sinatra is in the film version of Guys and Dolls. I sure am narrowing this down. Um, for those of you who have been stalking me, uh, that's one more clue for how to find me in my restaurant. Anyway, um... You know, it was... I, it, this is not... This can't be a creative... Thing to wonder but why is gambling a sin who decided gambling was a sin the Bible doesn't even condemn gambling as it turns out at least according to my Google search about the Bible it does condemn love of money in Timothy Hebrews Proverbs and Ecclesiastes uh, I didn't do a lot of research into that but those four books apparently <laughs> condemn love of money so then why doesn't the Bible condemn Wall Street, man. Why does it condemn Casino Morongo? Timothy, Hebrews, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Timothy's, Hebrew, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. You ever seen Bear, the musical Bear, a pop opera? That's what I was referencing there. Uh, that may not even be in Bear anymore. I saw the, a very early version of Bear. I saw the world premiere of Bear in Los Angeles in the early 2000s. And when uh, they go, Romans, Timothy, Corinthians, Leviticus, Romans, Timothy, Corinthians, Leviticus. I, I think those are the books of the Bible that condemn homosexuality in some way, shape, or form. So anyway, Timothy, Hebrews, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. That's, uh, those are the books that don't like gambling. Or, or uh, love of money. They don't mention gambling. Anyway, uh, also like, uh, yeah, so why is gambling illicit? Also, especially craps. There's a lot of, there's, this whole thing is about shooting craps in a crap game. And there's something about shooting craps. To this day, it's way more of an illicit thing than playing poker, right? Um, it's, I think it's people have a poker night at their buddy's house, and that's a little bit more. But then people like shoot craps in an alley. And the, get, the, the, everyone gets arrested. I don't know. I don't understand. I don't like gambling myself. Uh, it's the one thing that people get addicted to that I did not bother to get addicted to. Because it just always made me sad. I think I'm a little bit cheap and a little bit tight-fisted. And uh, if I spend 20 minutes in a casino and uh, lose 20 to $40, I just get uh, melancholy about it. I never think, I gotta get that back. I just walk away with my tail between my legs, and that's not fun. Um, let's talk about the history of the making of Guys and Dolls. Uh, the thing about Guys and Dolls is it was a, really just a producer having an idea and hiring some guys. It's the Backstreet Boys NSYNC uh, model of uh, making art. It's not somebody that had a dream and a fucking uh, acoustic guitar and decided to tell a story. It's some uh, mucky mucks uh, tried to hire some fellas to make a thing. That's what this is. And the thing that they wanted to make was a musical adaptation of the short stories of Damon Runyon. 
Uh, Damon Runyon, you know who he is. He's a Prohibition-era guy who was a sp- uh, started out as a sports reporter for the Hearst Papers, the William Randolph Hearst Papers. Uh, the man was a heavy gambler, a drinker, a smoker, and a son of a bitch, as it turns out. Um, you know, uh, he wrote these short stories that are about uh, these hoods, these, uh, you know, in New York City that are uh, with the race in form and they're uh, gambling. It's all during Prohibition. At one point, according to the Wikipedia page about him, uh, you know, he was married to this lady for a while. He went to Juarez, Mexico at one point to place, and he placed a bet with Pancho Villa, and Pancho Villa sent a 14-year-old messenger girl uh, so he could place the bet with him. This little girl, this 14-year-old girl, placed a bet on the wrong horse by accident, and that horse won the race. Uh, And then she was chatting with him and told him she wanted to be a dancer. And so he said, hey, look me up, kid, if you're ever in the Big Apple. And sure enough, five years later, she came to New York City. She was 19. She looked him up. Uh, and he got her work at a speakeasy, and he left his wife for her. And then his ex-wife became an alcoholic, and he, she died of a heart attack. And one of his children also died of alcoholism, and the other one suicided. And then he died of throat cancer. So, you know, not a lot of sunny elements to that story. Damon Runyon. <laughs> yeah, yeah I've, you hear people talk about Runyon-esque characters a lot. Uh, do you? Is that something you hear a lot? Anyway, Damon Runyon, short stories. Uh, This one is based on one particular short story, The Idols of Sarah something. I didn't write it down. Asshole, idiot. Anyway, uh, also the the idea of, you ever see that movie Cinderella Man? Uh, Apparently he coined that name for Jim J. Braddock, the uh, boxer. He called him Cinderella Man. And then they made that Russell Crowe film about it, uh, which is a very, it's a stupid name. Cinderella Man. The score to Guys and Dolls is written by the great Frank Lesser. The Lesser of Two Evils, am I right? It's not spelled that way. It's with a weird O in there. L-O-E-S-S-E-R. And he's, you know, one of these World War II musical theater guys that we discussed before. You know, he was writing songs and serving in the Air Force. And he wrote a song called Praise the Lord and Pass the Ammunition. You know that song. It's a patriotic song. Uh, I've heard people say that. I actually don't know that song, but I've heard that saying said. He wrote a bunch of other war songs, and he wrote a whole-ass war musical uh, written to be performed for soldiers abroad only, and it's called Hi Yank. Hi Yank! Exclamation point. Frank Lesser is a Tin Pan Alley guy. You know about Tin Pan Alley? I was born too fucking late, you guys. I wish that I had been alive in Tin Pan Alley. It sounds like so much fun. Tin Pan Alley, if you don't know, is uh, an area in Manhattan at 28th Street between 5th and 6th Avenue, to be exact, in the Flower District. And is these buildings full of cheap, upright pianos with uh, music publishers and songwriters all live there. And they just hammered out these tunes. Tin Pan Alley. I feel like I was built for that, but that doesn't exist. Does that exist in Nashville? I know people talk about Nashville, that that's like where you go to be a, to like write songs for a living. I don't know how anything works, to be quite frank. And I feel like the songs written in Nashville maybe aren't the type of songs I would write. And also, uh, who cares? Uh, This isn't about me. It's about guys and dolls. Frank Lesser did a musical called Where's Charlie? It's based on the play Charlie's Aunt. I know nothing about this. I know about the existence of a play called Charlie's Aunt because I feel like it's like one of those uh, old community theater staples. I've never seen it. I don't know anything about it. And I've never seen Where's Charlie? Frank Lesser is really good at what he does. 
and the songs, the score of Guys and Dolls, they're great. I'm going to avoid, while talking about Guys and Dolls, a lot of this uh, problematic tattletaling of the gender dynamic stuff because that could go way off the rails and it's boring and obvious. We'll all start with the premise that we don't think that it's good to talk like the characters in Guys and Dolls about women. So I'm not going to get into any of that shit and, you know, signal my own virtue to you all. But suffice to say that nearly everything Frank Lesser wrote was, by today's standards, pretty fucking iffy when it comes to the ladies. You know, even if it can be forgiven and contextualized, it, it comes up all the way through his career. A lot of it in this, Guys and Dolls. He also wrote How to Succeed in Business Without Really Trying. Uh, which I saw in middle school. And then there's a weird fucking moment where there's a song called Happy to Keep His Dinner Warm. That's her big uh, thing in life. She met this guy five minutes ago and she just wants to keep his dinner warm. And she's a gainfully employed lady. And he also wrote, say it with me now, what's the most sexist song in the world, according to some people. And then we have a debate about it on social media and it's annoying. Uh, Baby, It's Cold Outside. That's by Frank Lesser. Remember we had to have that annoying cultural conversation about that a few years ago? He wrote that and he, he and his wife, before she, he left her for the 14-year-old or 19-year-old, uh, they performed that at parties uh, together, he and his wife, and then he sold the rights to it in 1948. Isn't that adorable? His wife was mad at him when he sold the rights to it. Um, am I talking louder because this room is bigger? I don't know. I feel like I'm talking loud. I feel like I'm trying to get my energy up. And maybe it's contri- maybe it's grading. Is this grading? You guys can't answer me because we have a one-sided relationship that is parasocial, and I can't hear your voice. But yell back at your uh, your phone anyway, so I can uh, you know maybe I'll feel the vibration of that in the past from the future. Shut up, Frank Lesser. Uh, okay, Frank Lesser started Musical Theater International. That was news to me. That's exciting. Musical Theater International, if you don't know, is the company that owns all the fucking rights to all the fucking musicals. If you want to put on a show at any theater, even for kids, even for, you know, zero dollars, you got to go through Musical Theater International and get the licensing. Frank Lesser started that originally for his own work, and then he started doing it for everybody else. I'm going to tell you guys something. I have two one-act musicals that are available for licensing through Music Theater International because they were both uh, part of a package made by uh, Theater Now New York, the Soundbites Festival, made it into the finals in both of those. One of them is called The Facebook Fighter. The other one is called The Only Thing That Matters. They're both available for licensing through Musical Theater International. Check it out, baby. Look it up. Uh, Or don't do any of that. But hey, if you're a college uh, theater professor... You could do worse. You could do worse. Anyway, um, the book to Guys and Dolls is credited to Joe Sterling and Abe Burroughs, but these are not two uh, people working together. The first draft was written by Joe Sterling and was deemed unusable. So they brought in Abe Burroughs. He's a radio playwright. He revised it. Uh, The roles of Nathan Detroit and Adelaide uh, were written for the actors who played them in the original cast. Those are Sam Levine and Vivian Blaine. And I'm not talking about that little Sam Levine fella from Freaks and Geeks. No, it's possible for two people to have the same fucking name. Sam Levine. I think it's spelled different. It's L-E-V-E-N-E. Guys and Dolls opened at the 46th Street Theater in 1950. 
Now, of course, the 46th Street Theater is called uh, the Richard Rogers Theater today. They probably should just cut to the chase and call it the Hamilton Theater from now on, because that thing's never going to fucking close, right? The, the, the Richard Rogers Theater is now going to be tied up for decades, because Hamilton is going to keep on going. Guys and Dolls got unanimously positive reviews. Well-deserved. Uh, New York Times said, quote, Mr. Lesser's lyrics and songs have the same affectionate appreciation of the material as the book, which is funny without being self-conscious or mechanical. Right, 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 right. Uh, as you can tell from that uh, sound cue, I agree with that review. Uh, the movie, as we discussed uh, just a minute ago, is a very bad entry point. It's kind of, uh, it doesn't have the energy that it has when it's done well on stage. The movie is also extremely long. And I think that it's because the fellow that made it, which was Joseph Mankiewicz, does not really understand musicals. And he tried to make a normal film of that era and then also have songs in it. And the result was something uh, very boring and long and uh, poorly paced. But, uh, and I feel self-conscious when I say things like that because I'm really in the peanut gallery. I don't know how to make a movie. I only know how to watch them. But uh, this one is not good. Uh, the book uh, of the musical is very good. But the scenes in the movie, they don't work. Um, I mean, I think Joseph Mankiewicz is good, uh, of course. Uh, All About Eve is great. Um, there was a big revival of Guys and Dolls in 1992, and it was the, the emergence of Nathan Lane, kind of. In fact, he, he, his real name is John or some shit. It's not Nathan. He named himself after the character of Nathan Detroit, because John Lane was already a name in the union or whatever, and, you know, you have to do that. Michael J. Fox, for instance, is, has that J because of Michael Fox, who was an old man that I met when I was a child who worked at my mother's theater. We also get Peter Gallagher. He's in there playing, uh, what's his name? Sky Masterson. And uh, he used to be my celebrity doppelganger. Back around the time American Beauty came out uh, and I was in high school, people told me I looked like Peter Gallagher. I feel like I don't anymore. Unfortunately, I get Jack Black more often than not, and it, it, I die inside a little bit every time that happens, even though I like Jack Black. We get Faith Prince in there, daughter of uh, Harold Prince, of course, and soon to be uh, director extraordinaire. J.K. Simmons pops in. He's in there. Benny South Street. And Ernie Sabella, because you can't have Timon without Pumbaa, motherfucker. Those guys are just lifelong, uh, they're married to each other. They're homies. They were in the, they did the Lion King together, they did this together, they did the funny thing happened the way to the forum revival together. I think Nathan Lane has Ernie Sabella in his fucking contract. So I first heard the soundtrack, the original cast recording, in my mother's car when I was a child. I did not have any idea what the show was about, uh, but I made up my, this one in The Music Man. I, I made up my own idea about what was happening in the songs, listening as a child in the backseat, transfixed by it. I saw a production of it, finally, uh, at the Actors Co-op Theater in Los Angeles. And this is where I saw a great many intimate musical that inspired the musical theater lover in me. I owe a great deal to that place, Actors Co-op. They're still in operation, I believe. Their production of Into the Woods in the early 90s is what started it all for me. And then a bunch of shit that they did after that. Uh, the Actors Co-op Theater in the 90s, uh, maybe I just loved it so much because I was a kid and I didn't know any better, but I feel like all of that shit was really good. The Into the Woods, the Guys and Dolls, 
They did something's afoot. You guys know that one? The Agatha Christie-ish one? Yeah, that was a good one. Something's afoot, but the butler didn't do it. I got so excited about something's afoot that my headphones fell off. There's no need to wear headphones, really. There's only one thing, and it's my voice. And the music gets added later by Compassion Fatigue. Thank you, Compassion Fatigue, for that music. Uh, check out Compassion Fatigue on Spotify and Apple Music. I really am doing a lot of self-promotion in this episode today. Uh, oh yeah, I am Compassion Fatigue, in case you didn't know, in case that wasn't clear. Uh, it's, what was I trying to say? So Guys and Dolls, it's, it's the quintessential musical, or it should be. Like, it's so good. I think if you are introduced to musical theater via this one, you'll probably like musicals. If you, the answer to what is a musical is Guys and Dolls, then you're probably someone who likes musicals. If your first exposure is something like Cats, then you probably hate musicals. It's as simple as that. But it's like, what is, okay, there's singing and there's dancing and there's characters and there's comic relief and there's leading romantic leads. It's kind of, it's got it all and it's just, it's sort of a template for what a musical should be, I think. I think. It's the defining musical of the golden era. Um, so I did watch the movie because there's really no other options. I don't think somebody can set me straight on this. I don't know if there is a filmed play version of this. Uh, they should have made one, goddammit, of the one in 92 with all those movie stars. But all you really get are clips from that. The opening dance number in the movie is cool. Uh, Runyon Land, they call it. And of course the choreographer, let's not give short shrift to the choreographer, Michael Kidd. Um, I know very little about Michael Kidd. I only know him from the Birdcage uh, reference when he does all the Martha Graham, Martha Graham, and Michael Kidd, Michael Kidd, and Madonna, Madonna, Madonna. He also choreographed Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, which is uh, includes some insane dancing, acrobatic madness dancing, which is the only good thing about it. Everything else about Seven Brides for Seven Brothers is unwatchable. Is that the one with the fucking bless your beautiful heart? Horrible. Not a good musical. Not a good movie. Um... And this whole thing, yeah, it's the people in the streets, and it's like, oh, wow, you know, and, and I think the point of it is, uh, oh, look how seedy the, <laughs> these streets of New York are. There's a fake blind man uh, that's fucking trying to get money, and that made me think of my anger in my medieval literature class that same week, because we are covering Piers Plowman, and my professor, whom I have a lot of respect for, has a, a lot of trad-calf tendencies, uh, traditional... Catholic tendencies and when I did visit him in his office hours he did have Fox News on uh, but listen people believe different things that's fine but he was talking about uh, you should give uh, charity to as, as long as these people are deserving and, and then he talked one of my least favorite topics is when people talk about fake homeless people like yeah I gave a guy a dollar in the street and then you know I watched him walk away and he got into a Ferrari what the the Oh, that's not a thing, guys. Or it's not like enough of a thing that anyone needs to give a shit about that story when you tell it. Why would anybody beg for money on the street if they didn't need to? It's 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 a stupid uh, reactionary uh, fucking anti-charity shit. <laughs> wow, that was a long way to go for one fake blind man in the opening number. It gets into the first sung song. That's redundant, isn't it? All songs are sung. Uh, Fugue for Tin Horns. Great song. Terrible title. 
They're excited that it's a fugue. They're so excited that it's a fugue that they use three guys for it. And then the rest of the show, there's fucking only two guys. Rusty Charlie, we barely knew ye. Like we got Nicely Nicely Johnson. We got Benny South Street and we got Rusty Charlie. Shit, I said I was going to tell the story. Well, nothing's happened yet. We found, There's three guys with racing forms and they're, they're singing in a fugue. Um, and no, not in a fugue state, but in a fugue, uh, meaning one person sings one thing and then another person enters in and they, they sing it in counterpoint. And uh, I've got the horse right here. His name is Paul Revere. And there's a guy that says if the weather's clear can do and then they uh overlap it's great they're singing about uh horses horse r- race horses <laughs> in the film you get stubby k playing nicely nicely johnson doing a real nice job he was in the original broadway cast um those other two characters are pretty interchangeable or benny south street is fine i mean he's not as cool as nicely nicely and it doesn't really have the moment that nicely nicely gets in uh, you know the moments rather but yeah, Stubby K is great. I love uh, the fact, I love how he looks and I love how his voice is so high for how he looks. And I, I always get a nice charge out of that. Like the Beatle in Oliver, that's another example. Sometimes when there's an, a huge guy uh, that then has a, a, a very high tenor voice. I, I, I like that for some reason. Um, maybe I'm a latent homosexual and um, I, I, want, I want to be a cub to a bear. Uh, I'm six foot five, 250 pounds. So that'd have to be a pretty big fucking bear for me to be their cub. We get into another song that's very short, uh, follow the fold, which is catchy as hell. And that is just the, the mission people are coming down and they're like a a salvation army. The people saying, follow the fold and stray no more, stray no more. I didn't say I was going to sing every one of these songs for you guys. This is going to take a while. Me trying to summarize the whole plot and sing every song. You might as well just watch Guys and Dolls. And I like how she goes, before you take another swallow. Um, That's cool. (laughs) This version of New York City, um, I feel, it's obviously it's uh, hyperbolic. And uh, stylized, but yeah, like with all the gambling and these outfits, it's just hard to imagine this was real. I guess like something close to it was real, maybe like a less friendly. But we meet Harry the horse. There's a weird thing going on with the actor playing Harry the horse. Uh, he seems very Chicagoan, but they he he says specifically he's from Brooklyn. Of course, Big Julie, who we're gonna meet later, he's from Chicago. But the guy playing Harry the horse, he's he looks and talks exactly like Joe Mantegna. Uh, or more specifically, like he talks like uh, Fat Tony from The Simpsons, voiced by Joe Mantegna. And to me, I guess like Joe Mantegna, I don't know if I'm saying his name right, M- Mantegna, yeah. Uh, he seems like the quintessential Italian, uh, Chicagoan, Chicago man. He's Chicago man to me. Hey, how, how you doing? Uh, hey, has a terrible impression. I'll stop right there. All right, so um, Frank Sinatra plays Nathan Detroit, who is the guy who, in the story, is the he's the he's got the t- crap game, and he's organizing the crap game. <laughs> we meet him, and the the whole problem that he has is that they can't afford to do the crap game in a specific garage, and there's no other place they can do it because this cop is breathing down their neck. 
terrible casting of Frank Sinatra as Nathan Detroit. Um, I'm going to put my life at risk here if the mafia still cares about this sort of thing. The son of a bitch can't act. Um, I know that some people made a big deal that he was good in The Man with the Golden Arm. So be it. Haven't seen it, but I'm skeptical. He seems massively depressed the whole time, and he has no comic timing in this movie as Nathan Detroit. And it's, see, I, I wonder if it's because... I bet you Frank Sinatra is unwilling to be the butt of the joke, which is what Nathan Detroit has to be a lot of the time. He has to kind of be the, the rube, the heel... I wish I could have seen Nathan Lane do this. Um, anyway, this is widely remarked upon. I guess I thought I was original in this take on uh, Frank Sinatra when I was a teen or in this movie, but my research proves otherwise. This was widely remarked upon. Now, when they did this, uh, the, the, you know, certain people wanted the original guy <laughs> when they were casting the film, right? Uh, Mankiewicz, Joseph Mankiewicz wanted Sam Levine. And uh, Samuel Goldwyn of Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer said no. And here's his reason for saying no. And somebody is going to have to explain this to me because it's the weirdest thing I've ever heard in my life. Samuel Goldwyn said, quote, You can't have a Jew playing a Jew. It wouldn't work on screen. What does that mean? First of all, I didn't even realize Nathan Detroit was Jewish ever. In any iteration of this, like he didn't, he never read to me as a Jewish character. Apparently Sinatra tried to give Nathan some stereotype Jewish gestures and inflections. And when you know that in advance, you can kind of see it. But uh, Sinatra is such a crappy actor that uh, it doesn't <laughs> come across. Uh, he's doing the a hand thing. Uh, Frank Lesser said that he felt Sinatra played the part like, quote, a dapper Italian swinger. And the director, Joseph Mankiewicz, said, quote, If there could be one person in the world more miscast as Nathan Detroit than Frank Sinatra, that would be Laurence Olivier, and I am one of his greatest fans. The role had been written for Sam Levine, who was divine in it. I'll bet you Mankiewicz was terrified to give Sinatra notes or tell him he was doing anything wrong. Or, and I bet he was scared uh, to not say that he's one of the biggest Sinatra fans, too. Um, this is very cool. I found this out. Stephen Sondheim, at the age of 25, wrote a review of this film in a periodical called Films in Review. He said, this is Stephen Sondheim, the soon-to-be master, before West Side Story, uh, mind you. This is two years before West Side Story, 1955, when the film came out. Quote, Sinatra ambles through his role as Nathan Detroit as though he were about to laugh at the jokes in the script. He has none of the sob in the voice and the incipient ulcer in the stomach that the part requires and Sam Levine supplied so hilariously on the stage. Sinatra sings on pitch but colorlessly. Levine sang off pitch but acted while he sang. Sinatra's lackadaisical performance, his careless and left-handed attempt at characterization not only harmed the picture immeasurably, but indicate an alarming lack of professionality. Right, 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 right. The mob must have threatened uh, Sondheim for that. Maybe that's why he never had a big hit in his life. <laughs> Ever. Don't say, don't say bad things about Frank. <laughs> anyway, um, 
there's all the, the the speech patterns in this. The uh, Runyon-esque characters. They 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 don't use. Um, oh God, I don't even know what it's called. Yeah, I'm a fucking English major, and I know so little about grammar and usage. But uh, they they say uh, it does not seem possible, or you know, they don't say it doesn't. So. <laughs> you must concentrate on the game, Nathan. Uh, they, you, you know what I'm, you know what I'm saying? That's how they talk. So they're, they got this problem. They don't know where to put the fucking crap game. Uh, they sang a song called the oldest established, the oldest established, which feels like it shouldn't be called that. It should be called Nathan Detroit. Right. And that must've been like a hack that they had since the, on Broadway there, Nathan couldn't sing. So they had a bunch of guys sing a song about him. Well, it's good old reliable Nathan, 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 Detroit. I guess I am going to sing every song, but I wanted to demonstrate the fun rhythm of that song. Nathan, 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 do da. Um, they're, then they're like, okay, let's get some money for this by bilking uh, Sky Masterson, who's a high roller gambler, by uh, winning him in a bet, uh, the, beating him. Jeez. I may bail on this whole idea of telling the plot of the story because the podcast is going to be too long if I do that because we're barely into this. Um, so they, they decide, oh, what we'll do, Nathan decides, I'll make a bet with, Na- with Sky Masterson. I'll bet him that the, the strudel sold more than cheesecake. And he does a little insider trading on this. He has his fucking henchman go into the kitchen and ask how many cheesecakes were sold last week and how many strudels the numbers on that by the way are 1200 cheesecakes and 1500 strudels that's a lot of fucking desserts this place is doing very well adelaide comes in adelaide uh, is nathan's girlfriend she is annoying uh but it's not her fault it's uh she's the quintessence she's the original you know character voice character that uh, annoys people that don't like musicals, which uh, ideally is you, my podcast audience, uh, unless any of these <laughs> prior episodes have any any effect on you. Did I mention I need you to like them? Can we get to work on that? Adelaide, uh, yeah, I'm Adelaide. Oh, gosh. Uh, Vivian Blaine plays her in the film, reprising her Broadway role. Uh, and then, of course, Brando is playing Sky Masterson. And boy, oh, boy, what a drink of water that guy is. <laughs> In 1955. This is a non-canonical Brando film. They didn't even mention it in that Brando documentary on Turner Classic Movies, which is a very good documentary. Not the one where it's tape recordings of him talking. For God's sake, can we not? Marlon Brando is like Bob Dylan in the sense that he does not know what makes him great. And if you ask him about himself and his process or try to get inside the mind of a Brando or a Dylan, he will just fuck with you. And uh, spout off a lot of nonsense. So you shouldn't bother. But you don't have to because he's dead. Um, There's a whole she's all that 10 things I hate about you cruel intentions element to the story. The whole idea is that they want uh, to make it. The the bet that they do make with Sky is I bet you you can't get one dame, one doll of your choice, of our choice, to go with you to Cuba on short notice, and he's like, hey, I'm a very attractive man uh, that looks exactly like Marlon Brando because I'm being played by him. So I bet you I could win that bet. But then, uh uh-oh, it turns out 
that doll that they pick is the one from the mission that we met a second ago. Sarah from the mission. A mission doll. Oh, boy. And so, yeah. For some reason, all of the teen movies when I was growing up were had this exact same plot line. Uh, the, 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 the Taming of the Shrew situation. Where uh, it, it, it was all a bet all along. Oh, but I wish that I hadn't made that bet because now I love you. That's what happens here. Gene Simmons plays Sarah, not the guy from Kiss, the actress. She is gorgeous in this, by the way. She is very uh, attractive. <laughs> There's very little talk of God or Jesus at this mission. I don't know if they didn't want to be sacrilegious or uh, make the out-of-town audience mad, but... And then, well, I guess they, but when they do talk about the Bible, it's because these dummies that work at the mission are misquoting the Bible. And Sky comes in and gets all flirty with her. And they sing, I'll know. The love songs are the weakest, I would say, in Guys and Dolls. And I thought maybe, you know, that could have been like when I was a kid. I'll know is all right. The best one is I've never been in love before. And they cut it from the movie for God knows what reason. But I think that like in West Side Story, I don't know, maybe it's the performance of the love songs in the movie. Uh, like in that case, those were bad because they're ghost singers. They're not those actual actors. And in this case, uh, let me tell you something. Neither Gene Simmons nor Marlon Brando can really sing. Uh, and on this one, on I'll Know, she's flat and he's sharp. It's really weird. And I guess there was no such thing as pitch correction in those days. In fact, I know there wasn't. And yeah, wow. It's very, and it's strange how they kiss after the song. It's, you know, I think the idea is that he goes in for a kiss boldly and she slaps him, which shows that he's not really as smooth as he thought it was. Or maybe it was a different thing to be smooth back then. And it was just, you could get away with a thing like that. I, obviously you could. Not with a mission doll though. So, you know, uh, didn't work. We get to this club where we see uh, Adelaide perform. And Adelaide's whole thing is, it's and it's a tired thing. She just wants to settle down with a picket fence and get married. Uh, which, you know, it's it's a little overdone. She sings the song. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> she sings the song. I'm sorry. I am committed. I'm going to keep going. She sings a song called A Bushel and a Peck, which is very annoying. I love you, a bushel and a peck. Yeah, we're performing it in this club. And they replaced it in the movie with a weird fucking little kitty cat song and dance. And they say it's her, it's a, her and a bunch of other ladies being real sexy dressed as cats. And then they sing, pet me, papa, papa, pet me nice. You. Uh, and I was couldn't understand why this happened why they got rid of a bushel and a peck and replaced it with such a shitty weird song uh even though the bushel and peck isn't that good uh, samuel goldwyn just said he didn't like it bushel and a peck <laughs> samuel Go yeah boy what, what meddling this this guy uh, a lot as it turns out this is a lot like lucy and jekyll and hyde this whole thing with adelaide where it's like she's a stripper Sort of, or like her function in the story is that of a stripper. Like this is a naughty place and they're doing a naughty thing, but she's like performing a song with backup dancers. Anyway, it's funny how all of the ladies that are like supposed to be beautiful and or sexy 
have what we now recognize to be old lady hair, you know, because all of these ladies from this era, of course, became our grandmothers and I guess kept the same hairstyle. You know what I mean? Like that really crisp, uh, tightly uh, quaffed hair. Take a look at Adelaide in this movie. You'll know what I'm talking about. Adelaide's Lament is catchy, and uh, it has a lot of good lyrics sitting on music, which you only get when there's one person writing the music and lyrics all by themselves. And get off at Saratoga for the 14th time. It's her whole song about how she's got uh, psychosomatic symptoms uh, because she really wants to get married, and uh, Nathan is putting it off, and it's making her sneeze a lot. Uh, from a lack of community property and a feeling she's getting too old. See, that's what she really wants. It's fucking, she wants some community property. It's fucked up. Is it? Who cares? The title song, Guys and Dolls. When you see a guy, reach for stars in the sky. That's a catchy one. Um, Sinatra is in it. In the like, Nathan is not supposed to sing it, and, and he does not sing it in the play. I, I bet you Sinatra bullied his way into it, you know? Uh, he's like, yeah, hey, you know, it's the hit, it's this hit, that's the hit. I gotta sing the hit. And then uh, the guy sitting home by a television set who used to be something of a rover, they point to the audience, and I found that very interesting. And, and I'm talking about the movie. They point to you, the audience, uh, watching it, and they're saying, "Guy sitting home by a television set who used to be something of a rover." Now, I'm going to tell you something. This is a year before the first network airing of an entire film, which was The Wizard of Oz. So, like, how did they predict that I would be sitting home by a television set watching them? How did they know to talk to me? How did they not, you know, they, they, that doesn't make sense if you're talking to people in a movie theater. I might be overthinking it. Big Julie is the big high roller gambler that comes to town. And, you know, that's me probably. If I ever auditioned for Guys and Dolls, I'll tell you exactly what would happen. I would get a callback for Sky Masterson, and after the callback, I'd be offered the role of Big Julie, and I would turn it down. Unless it was like a block from my house and it paid. Uh, the reason that I get cast as Big Julie is because I'm a big uh, Chrissy. I am a large uh, man. I'm six foot five and broad shouldered, um, and you know. Whatever, man. I just, by the way, played uh, a role in a music video. I played the role of Skyscraper Man. So uh, keep a lookout for that. Uh, <laughs> it's some uh, lady, who, a friend of a co-worker, uh, wrote a song about her life experience of her roommate burning the apartment down, trying to have a seance and falling asleep around the candles. And a, a very tall man apparently knocked on the door to say, hey, there's smoke coming from your apartment, and he's the skyscraper man, and I was enlisted to play the skyscraper man in this music video. It's my music video debut. So yeah, Big Julie, he's from Chicago. Harry the Horse is not from Chicago, as we talked about. Adelaide is nearby, and she's such an idiot. Like all she needs to do is because they're they're trying to say someone says Nathan and Adelaide are getting married because the cop is there, and that's why they're wearing carnations. And she's like, really? <laughs> Don't you think he'd fucking tell you first? And that you wouldn't just announce it in front of his friends and then that would be how you got the news? They added a shitty song in the movie for Sinatra to sing called Adelaide just to give him a serious song. The whole movie is a cynical cash grab. And I wonder if Brando only agreed to do it because there's like Havana and Congo drums. 
Because they he eventually gets Sarah to go to Havana with him. And so Nathan lost the bet. Jesus, I have to stop yawning. This is disrespectful to my audience. I'm sorry. Um, and, you know, Brando's all into the drums and the percussion in real life. Uh, they He starts ordering her dolce de leches. And, uh, you know, it's kind of shady. He doesn't tell her there's no alcohol in it. But he says there's only enough to keep the milk from going sour. The Bacardi. And uh, they have so many dolce de leches. You see the dead soldiers there on the table. And it's an insane waste of coconuts. I was very concerned about that. I, I love coconuts. And fucking hell, every single one of these... Dolce de Leche is served in a coconut, and when you're done drinking it, that coconut just sits there and probably gets thrown in the trash. And uh, Sarah, in this conversation while over Dolce de Leche, is very concerned about being a prude or being perceived as one. And there's a whole uh, ballet. It's not a ballet. There's a dance sequence where she fights off all these. She gets drunk, basically. Um, and Gene Simmons is great in this part of the movie. And in fact, and I, if I were a bell... She sounds good. Like, she sounded like shit on I'll Know. But then here, I she can belt. She should have uh, belted her way through I'll Know. Or they should have changed the key. I don't know how they should have done. What they should have done. There's a song called My Time of Day. They cut it from the movie. Uh, it's because it's boring. It's a boring song. And they should cut it. Should have cut it from the show. It's a speed bump. You'd think they uh, would have cut I've Never Been in Love before because of Brando's singing limitations. But in the movie, they replaced it with a shit song called Your Eyes Are the Eyes of a Woman in Love. Your eyes are the eyes of a woman in love. Like, there needs to be some kind of song. That's the thing. They, they, they need some kind of song to signal to the audience that he's actually falling in love with her, even though we probably could have guessed. And well, I've never been in love before. It would have been better, and it is better in the show. It's basically the song that is missing from The Music Man. Like, when you watch The Music Man... I think that your experience of uh, Western storytelling tells you in advance that, okay, this guy is running a con, but he probably is falling in love with her anyway. But the music man never actually tells you that until the very end. Uh, it just looks like Harold Hill running a scam the whole time. And this was the, their way of telling the audience, hey, Sky Masterson kind of likes her for real. And uh, they have an argument in front of the mission because what happens is they get home from Havana and it's like the early morning or it's his time of day. I guess that's night. What time of day is it? I don't remember. But then all of the hoods run out of the mission because they've been shooting craps in the mission. And she says, oh, my God, that was the only reason you took me to fucking Havana so that your buddies could shoot craps in my mission. Brando gets really intense in this scene when he's arguing with her. He gets very Stanley Kowalski, uh, where you remember, okay, he's like an actor, actor, and this is not just uh, oopsie doopsie musical theater. <laughs> the act two opener is a song called "Take Back Your Mink." That is a good song. Uh, they do the old trick here where they do it one time slow and then one time fast. Uh, it reminds me of a band I used to play in called Drunk in the Garage. Check that out on Spotify and Apple Music. Boy, there's another plug for myself or me in the past. It's not really my band. I just played keyboards in it. My friend Josh was the uh, lead singer and song, uh, principal songwriter. But he, we had a song called Delirium Tremens that was that way, where it's one time as a ballad. And then, uh, my delirium. And then after one time through, we go like, one, two, three, four, my delirium. Um, you know what I mean? That's what Take Back Your Mink does. 
Now, this song gave me an inconvenient and confusing erection when I was uh, prepubescent. My sexuality had not really been awakened yet at this point. I was probably like 11 or 12. Um, I was still in the phase of fast-forwarding through the Jessica Rabbit song and Who Framed Roger Rabbit because uh, the uh, experience of becoming involuntarily aroused was like unpleasant because it was like, uh, it's weird. <laughs> but, uh, you know, s- sitting in the audience with your family when this happens, is, what happens is they, 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 the, the conceit of the song is that this lady, she's wearing this nice mink and she tells the story of this guy that bought her all these nice things and then he tried to peel them off of her and uh, have sex with her. And she says, take back your mink, take back your pearls, take back. Uh, but then, and so when they do it fast, her and all of her backup dancers like take these things off and re- for real. And they get down to their you know lingerie more or less, right? Is that what it is? What do we call that? Lingerie? After take back your gown, that's the big moment. So, uh, yeah. And also at that age, I think the idea of a guy wanting to remove all of her clothes uh, was kind of uh, upsetting to me. Like, this is a serious situation. (laughs) Uh, You have the the old man that's the uncle or whatever of Sarah sings a song called More I Cannot Wish You. Who the hell likes a song like that? There's always some fucking song in the second act that they give to an old character that nobody gives a fuck about and that we wish would end. This is the this is that. Uh, Brando tries to make this all right. Uh, okay, so he goes to the fucking you know crap game. He, he or he shows up by the way in a lot of these scenes wearing an all black suit with a white tie. I used to try to uh, imitate this uh, in high school. That was when it was time to go formal. That's what I would do: white tie, all black suit. It's a nice look. And a black shirt, by the way. Crucially. Black shirt, black coat, white tie. It's a very... Uh, am I allowed to say Goomba? Uh, no, probably not. Is that a slur? It's a very Italian-American thing to do. Um, there's the Craps Ballet. I was wondering like, why it's called Craps. I didn't get any answers. The only thing that I found out is that the game was invented in the 18th century and it was called Crabs at first with a K. The sewer is where they're having this crap game, by the way, and it's weirdly colorful, but uh, it's it's kind of doing the same thing it did on stage, but in a film, and it's weird on film. Like, it doesn't look like any sewer I've ever been in. I've never been in a sewer, so I don't know. I, I imagine there's not these many colors in a sewer. There's the whole thing in the book that's very funny. The big Julie is the big guy everyone's afraid of, and he's, like, losing, and so he says, we're going to play with my dice and his, uh, there's no fucking uh, numbers on these dice. It's like, oh, it's because I painted over them, but I re- memorized where they all are. And uh, that's, that's funny. That's a good time. This guy comes in, and uh, because he's apparently just awesome, he can beat up Big Julie. You know, come on. That guy can't beat that guy up just because he's super cool. And he goes down like a fucking sack of potatoes. And he makes a wager with them. He says, you know, if I win, you all have to come to the fucking mission uh, tonight with me, I have to come to the mission, uh, to, so that he saves the mission by all the sinners coming to it. I don't know how, like, uh, the mission doesn't get shut down if it has sinners. I don't know if they get any money out of that, but, um, he sings luck be a lady, uh, which is the hit. It's in the public consciousness. If you really think about the lyrics, though, well, don't. (laughs) The metaphor that he's drawing there. The first time I heard it was Barbara Streisand's version in my mom's car. And I had a totally different reading of what that was about. Like, I thought that it was about, uh, 
a lady. I thought, you know, because she sang it. I thought it was a song for a woman about uh, telling herself in a mirror, hey, we're going on a date tonight and let's fucking let's keep this shit. Let's 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 do a nice job. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's not uh, how it actually is. Sinatra has a version of this song, too. Um, that has got a very different rhythm to it. And I remember being bothered by uh, in yeah, the movie Slums of Beverly Hills. The brother character played by David Crumholtz. Uh, he talks about he's auditioning for guys and dolls at school. And you hear him. Pra- you see him practicing it in tidy whities And he's clearly practicing the fucking Sinatra version of it. So and then he gets the part. You're not going to be prepared for that audition if you're singing the, you know, because Sinatra sings it like luck be a lady tonight. You know, and the musical theater, you know, the original is luck be a lady tonight, luck be a lady. So it's different. You see what I mean? Adelaide finds out that this guy's a piece of shit, this Nathan Detroit, and then she meets up with him. And she's there's a couple of very funny lines where she's trying to take the high road and saying, please, we do not have to conduct ourselves like a slob. And I like that. And then they sing Sue Me because she's crying. Uh, great song, melody and lyrics. You promised me this, you promised me that, you promised me everything under the sun, then you give me a kiss and you wrap me your hand and you're off to the races again. Um, you, again, it's, you only get this with a guy who does both lyrics and music. Um, and this is the one time in the film that Sinatra being a good singer actually helps because the melody on the all right already part, like Sam Levine playing it in, in the original cast recording, that man truly cannot sing. And I don't mean that because I know people say like, oh, he can't sing. Like he cannot hold a note, this motherfucker. And um, it's a sweet moment, Sumi, because you see that uh, Nathan is kind of being honest for the first time. You know, all right, already, I'm just a no good Nick. And having Sinatra actually sing those notes uh, helps it because it's just cool. The best years of my life, I was a fool to give to you. All right, already, I'm just a no-good Nick. All right, already, it's true, so new, so sue me. I like it. I kind of wish there was a turn in the third verse. Um, Like, if this were a more contemporary musical written with the rules of making a musical nowadays, there probably would be one. Because the song actually does, it, it loops three times. It's like Adelaide's upset. He says, look, what do you want? What do you want from me? I'm sorry. And I love you. And then she's like, but I'm upset also in this way. And he's like, hey, what do you want from me? I love you. And then she says, but I'm still upset. And then he says, hey, what do you want from me? I love you. (laughs) My point is, uh, you know, the uh, Rogers and Hammerstein model, the, the Sondheim carried into the late 20th century, you, you need to move the story forward a little bit more. And Sumi uh, kind of uh, is on a holding pattern, even though it's a nice song. Why do all of the sinners show up at the same fucking time? Did they take a bus? I mean, when they go to the mission. It's weird. Oh, uh, well, there's no sinners. And then they all walk in. It's strange. They get there and they have uh, what seems a lot more like a 12-step meeting than a... Uh, whatever it's supposed to be. And they're all sort of getting up and confessing stuff. Uh, and we get a, maybe my favorite song in the show, Sit Down, You're Rockin' the Boat. Sung by Nicely Nicely Johnson. Stubby K is king. Sounds so good on this. I love the background vocals too. 
Um, when the wave washes him overboard. That's not what it sounds like. But there's some nice harmonies on that. And it's about his dream, about uh, his guilt for being such a uh, fucking dice-rolling uh, degenerate. <laughs> and the devil will drag you under with his soul so heavy you'll never float. This is an evening with Chris Kerrigan. This is my cabaret show. I'm doing every song for you tonight. Uh, Sarah's journey is complete when she is not a prude anymore and lies to the police on behalf of the gambling men. And then Big, Big Julie says, Now there's a right broad. <laughs> That's her arc. Um, there's a dreadful final song. It's not that bad a song. It's just bad as a final song called Marry the Man Today. Uh, where it's Adelaide and Sarah singing together, commiserating and just saying, resolving uh, that the solution to this problem is to marry the, ma quote, marry the man today and change his ways tomorrow. That's really bad advice. I know this is a musical, to quote uh, the great Pippin, the son of Charlemagne. All right, I know this is a musical comedy, but I want my life to mean something. Uh, the film has the decency to skip straight to a dance and a double wedding and not have this song. And I guess the point of the whole thing, uh, of the whole the Guys and Dolls, is the sentiment contained in the title song. Guys and Dolls. Everybody sings that in the finale. The, and the, set, the idea of that song is that the woman is the one with the real power because she'll somehow turn you into a zombie because you love her. Uh, and you, you'll have no choice but to marry her and quit your rough and rowdy ways. And this idea has spawned a million romantic comedies where a guy is getting married and his buddies say, Oh boy, you've been captured, buddy. Say goodbye to your freedom. Oh, you poor schmuck. Oh, condolences. You know, it's a uh, cliche at this point. Reminded me of the, uh, the, the, the tale of the wife of Bath in the Canterbury Tales. The point of which is that if you give a woman anything she wants, then you're, uh, that's the answer to your entire life. That's what these uh, guys are doing for these dolls. Anyway, guys and dolls, it's a real good time. Let's just rewind to a uh, simpler, more misogynistic era so that we can appreciate it, right? Let's not try to fix it. Don't try to fix him. Don't change his ways today. Don't marry the guys and dolls today and change his ways from yesterday. That got a little convoluted. It is time to move on to our second musical after a quick bathroom break. If I had any sponsors, wouldn't this be an amazing time to tell you about those sponsors? I don't have any. Uh, I do think you guys should maybe look into uh, Squarespace to build your own website. And uh, go ahead and join Stamps.com. I'm just trying to think of the things that all podcasts uh, advertise. What's the other one? Oh, MeUndies. Definitely get a pair of MeUndies. Uh, ZipRecruiter. Go ahead and get, go over to ZipRecruiter for all your recruiting needs. Anyway, uh, I'll be right back. I'm going to go to the bathroom. Okay, we're back. That was a disastrous break. Uh, boy, the minute that I took the headphones off, I was met with a deafening silence of this house that I am alone in. I think that... Um, uh, when I'm going through times of personal strife and sadness, I tend to always uh, keep things noisy, whether that's like music or TV or podcasts. I am a large consumer of podcasts, as you can tell by all of the uh, popular podcast sponsors I knew uh, a second ago. 
I'm not just the president of the hair club. I'm a member. Uh, podcast. Uh, God. Anyway, uh, let's get back into the swing of this. Uh, let's uh, make it noisy in here with just my voice and my opinions about Man of La Mancha. Now, let me ask you something. Where the fuck did Man of La Mancha come from? Why did it happen? I love it. So here's the thing. I love Man of La Mancha. I think I like it more than Guys and Dolls. I'll tell you what. Man of La Mancha has a B++. I was curious because I got into Man of La Mancha later than most musicals that I got into in, in the sense that I was already like 17 or something or 18. And, um, you know, I didn't give much thought to the authors of it. But looking at them now, who the fuck are these guys? Why is there so little information about them? And about Man of La Mancha. Like, so, The Impossible Dream is how we know about Man of La Mancha. That is the, the hit, the song. It became a big standard, and people did versions of it. And people at the restaurant where I work sing it from time to time. I've never tried it. Uh, so we... I think what's happening, based on my research, with what, what little is available about Dale Wasserman, the book writer, and uh, Mitch Lee, the composer, and Joe Darian, the lyricist, so we examine Sondheim musicals where the composer-lyricist Stephen Sondheim is essentially the star and then he gets a Harold Prince to direct and he gets a Hugh Wheeler to write a book, but it's like, it's a Sondheim musical. Then we look at Fosse musicals, which we, you know, are centered around Fosse. You don't say that you're going to see, oh, Stephen Schwartz's fucking Pippin or fucking Candor and Ebb's Chicago. We're going to see a Fosse musical. Or a similar uh, ditto with uh, Jerome Robbins' West Side Story. The, the director-choreographer is the driving force. This one is unique in that the book and the play that the book is based on sort of dictates this. And this is a book written by Dale Wasserman based on his play called I, Don Quixote. Uh, and this was a teleplay, as a matter of fact. I love teleplays. I think I've already bored everybody with that opinion. Uh, the, the old uh, Playhouse 360, or maybe 360 is not even the number. But anyway, uh, I like teleplays. And so who's Dale Wasserman? He's the guy that wrote the play version of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, which has nothing to do with the movie version, by the way. The movie version is not in any way based on the play. It's based on the original book. But before he wrote this play, or any play, he had a crazy upbringing. He was orphaned at nine. He then ran away from the state orphanage in South Dakota and rode the rails, living as a train hobo. He got no education and then somehow ended up in Los Angeles and he squatted on the roofs of buildings on Spring Street in downtown LA. Somehow uh, went and did one year of high school in Los Angeles. I wish I knew what high school it was. Uh, and then, but then dropped out and he was a self-taught lighting designer, director, and producer. And then this isn't really explained. Somehow, like, has a career. This, this train hobo. This is a real Horatio Alger tale, if, if ever I heard one. So he goes on vacation to Madrid after he's already had a little bit of success. He goes on vacation to Madrid and somebody in Madrid writes a local news thing that is fake. Fake news, 
saying that uh, Dale Wasserman is in town to research a film adaptation of Don Quixote. And uh, that's not true, but it gives Dale Wasserman the idea to write a play called I, Don Quixote. And then that eventually becomes a musical, Man of La Mancha. Have I read Don Quixote? Of course I haven't. I don't have that kind of time. It's a long fucking book with a bunch of episodes. That was a long sip. Let's cut that out. So, the teleplay I, Don Quixote, uh, and if you don't, you know, teleplay is a fucking play done on television with like three cameras. Anyway, um, it stars Lee J. Cobb and Eli Wallach, both great actors, and uh, Colleen Dewhurst. Uh, where are my Avon Lee heads at? Where are my Anne of Green Gable on the Disney Channel uh, in the 90s peeps? That's, uh, what's her name? Marilla. She was in this. So, um, they, they say, let's get this on stage. Let's get some songs in here. Let's make this a musical. They get a fellow named Mike, Mitch Lee to write the score. And who the fuck is Mitch Lee? He's a jazz musician who, you know, makes a living writing TV jingles. And now their first idea to, for the write the lyrics, to write the lyrics is W.H. Auden, the poet. And they're dumb because they don't realize that really good poets don't necessarily write really good lyrics. Uh, lyric writing is fucking delicate and it's it's craft all on its own. So the lyrics that are written by W.H. Auden are shit. I don't know if the poetry is good. I know that people seem to like W.H. Auden. Nick, it's like Nick Hornby. Um, when uh, I, Ben Folds, who was a, a, a recording artist uh, that I grew up liking a great deal, now I don't uh, like very much uh, because it's all very juvenile. It's the Kevin Smith problem of uh, you get a little bit older and you realize, oh, this is still for teenagers. Uh, but there was he did an album once with Nick Hornby writing the lyrics, and I was like, oh, that's great. Nick Hornby, the author who wrote the books uh, about a boy and high fidelity and things like that. But it turns out Nick Hornby doesn't know how to write lyrics either. It's a weird album. Anyway, uh, for Man of La Macha, which is what this podcast is about, they get Joe Darian, who there's zero information about Joe Darian on his Wikipedia page, other than he wrote the lyrics to Man of La Mancha. If you do dig a little deeper, you find out that he uh, co-wrote a musical called Shinbone Alley <laughs> in the 50s. Uh, that apparently also Mel Brooks was involved in writing, and it was a flop starring Eartha Kitt that was all about, like, kittens and cockroaches, and it had ballet numbers, and it's a, a little bit like the Cats, where it was based on these stories of uh, kittens and cockroaches and ballet. And uh, anyway, Man of La Macha is uh, very 60s. It was born out of the experimental theater movement, and it's meta because there are people on stage... Uh, the characters are doing experimental theater as part of the plot, so it, this is important. It's it's not a straight adaptation of Don Quixote. That would be impossible. There are 400 characters in Don Quixote. It's a tiny part of the novel, and it's also about Cervantes, Don Miguel de Cervantes, who wrote Don Quixote. It's about his experience before the Spanish Inquisition, but it isn't really about that either. It's a fan. <laughs> Dale Wasserman says that the man of La Mancha he's referring to in the title is Cervantes, not the character of Don Quixote. So uh, I, I, I probably won't tell you the plot of... Uh, I'm going to give you an overview of the plot now so I don't have to go along the way and do it. So uh, 
It starts with Cervantes and his buddy getting arrested. They're theater guys they, because they put on an entertainment. And they're there uh, awaiting uh, punishment from the Inquisition. And there are all these other uh, creepy prisoners there that are trying to rob them and saying, oh, we're going to give you a trial to see if we won't rob you. And then they say, oh, I'll do a defense, but I would like to do it in the form of an entertainment, a charade. Uh, charade, charade. And then they, he puts on makeup and he like casts it with the prisoners. Like, you play this and you play this. And he tells the story of Don Quixote de la Mancha, which is the fake name of uh, Alonso Quijana, an old man that loses his mind and thinks that he's a knight errant. And he gets his neighbor, Sancho Panza, to be his squire. And then he goes and he hangs out of his inn and he meets a, uh, a whore, a sex worker named Aldonza. But he does not call her Aldonza, he calls her Dulcinea because he thinks she's a beautiful maiden lady fair. But she's like, I am just a whore named Aldonza. And he's like, no, you're Dulcinea. I don't know what the fucking difference is between those two names, why one is nice and one isn't. I guess that's how things were in Spain at that uh, point in history. And then there's all these little scrapes he gets into there at the end. And there's an asshole named Pedro. He beats up Pedro and... His, but then his family's worried about him. His niece and uh, his niece's husband for, is very worried. And uh, they go back uh, to try to fucking... They're not that worried. They're actually self-interested. And they try to trick him, get inside his madness and trick him and pretend to be knights themselves. And then the whole thing goes down where uh, Aldonza gets gang raped. I mean, it's pretty clear that's what we're dealing with. And... Uh, He's like, no, I still love you. You're, you are my Dulcinea now and forever. And then the, finally his fucking niece's husband pretends to be the knight of the mirrors and makes him look himself in the mirror. And then the madness spell breaks. And then he's like fucking like, oh, I'm just an old man. And then anyway, a little more on the ending later. Uh, the ending's very moving, certainly. <laughs> so on Broadway, uh, the lead role was played by Richard Kiley. And I don't know much about Richard Kiley except that... Uh, I saw him in a TV movie in 1997 about Alzheimer's disease called Time to Say Goodbye? Question mark? It was about a guy that wanted to do an assisted suicide. And I remember being told by my mother that that was the guy that originated the role in uh, Man of La Mancha, but I had not seen Man of La Mancha yet. And uh, that is a very disturbing uh, TV movie. I don't know if anyone uh, remembers that. Why would you? It was a TV movie, 1997. Man of La Mancha was a big hit on Broadway. Uh, Time Magazine called it uh, a metaphysical smasheroo. All right. All right. All right. All right. A metaphysical smasheroo. Okay. The New York Daily News uh, called it an exquisite musical play. The finest and most original work in our musical theater since Fiddler on the Roof opened. It moves enthrallingly from an imaginative beginning to a heart-wrenching ending. Um, I think I should make a new sound cue for, uh, just like sort of agreeing with the review. That's not just a wrong or a right, right, right. Uh, if I did make that, then you probably just heard it and I sound like an idiot talking about it. In 1972, they made the film, uh, starring Peter O'Toole, Sophia Loren, and James Coco. Uh, that is the only entry point I am aware of. I watched that and that's how I got to know this thing and it's a good movie with good performances Peter O'Toole is amazing in this 
Um, he has a singing double, but it does not seem like it. He's doing a great job of lip syncing. Uh, I think that the movie is pretty faithful to the play. It cut a couple of songs, and it did add a weird, long, boring sequence at the beginning. I suggest you fast forward that. They put that in there to make sure that you really wanted to watch this, because there's a whole goddamn thing where they put on a performance and then get arrested and then have to march through a thing to another thing. And it's weirdly long and makes you wonder what you've gotten yourself into. They did, uh, at one point, maybe in the 80s, maybe in the 90s, I don't know, they made this fucked up CD of a bunch of uh, opera people singing this. Placido Domingo, uh, Julia Michenes, is that how you say that? Uh, Jerry Hadley, and, just for fun, just to make to show you that we're not too serious here, the Patink, Manti Patinkin, playing Sancho Panza. Very fucking strange. Uh, I don't know why they do this. There's an operatic album uh, of West Side Story also with Jose Carreras uh, play, singing Tony. And it fucking sucks um, to do the operatic version. I mean, and it makes even less sense for this show because this is not a show that's classical on any level. If you, you know, West Side Story, you know, at least it's like Leonard Bernstein is a classical conductor and his music is, a bit, you know, Baroque and sort of interesting. But, and it's not that this music isn't interesting. It's just that it's very theatery and it's very charactery. And having Placido Domingo sing these songs is fucking strange. Uh, also, he's he me tooed the shit out of some people, or he we me tooed him. I don't know how if you use me too as a verb. Anyway, he is a victim of the me too, a victim, not a victim, a perpetrator of the me too movement. Placido Domingo. But. Uh, he still, uh, if you want some nice Christmas tunes, uh, Placido Domingo is a good way to go. Um, the theme-wise, so I'm not a Cervantes scholar by any means. I probably is evidenced by the fact I've never read a single word of Don Quixote, which is the primary Cervantes thing. Um, but thank God they made a truncated musical of it for us illiterate slobs to get a little taste. And the theme here, which I think is a resonant one, is that a key to a happy life is uh, to tell yourself a story. And to not subscribe. Uh, it doesn't make you crazy. And what makes you crazy is thinking that there is an objective reality that you should accept and subscribe to. So, um, there you go. Uh, fake it till you make it. Or just fake it, even if you never make it. <laughs> Nothing is real and nothing to get hung about. That's the Beatles. That's not uh, Man of La Mancha. I'm so tired. Oh my God. Let's get through this. Um, I, I uh, this it's it's gonna be great. <laughs> Don't give up on me yet, audience. It's gonna be a great episode. It has been so far, and it will continue to be. Now Peter O'Toole is on a whole other level acting-wise in this. He was one of our greatest actors. We lost him. He's lived to a very old age and made a strange movie right before he died called Venus, where you have to watch him grope a 19-year-old girl. Um, but some of these monologues and his delivery on some of these lines is just um, miles above um, what anyone else in the movie is doing. When she says, oh, the, the guy in the prison says, says to him, uh, oh, you, I, I, don't, I hate you artists because you try to make man not look at reality. And he says, exactly, reality. A stone prison crushing the human spirit. 
Poetry demands imagination, and with imagination, you may discover a dream. So I'm not a Peter O'Toole level actor, so I didn't do it justice, but uh, he is great. Every scene that he's in is uh, electrified. I've seen Lawrence of Arabia. I saw it recently for the first time. And uh, I wanted to like it better than I did. I think maybe if you'd seen this in the theater for the first time when films hadn't been in color very long, uh, maybe you would have been spellbound by how, the, how it looked. But I found the story of it all a little bit... Uh, I, 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 I didn't like to have a lot of fun with it. <laughs> but Peter O'Toole is, is great. Now, the whole conceit of putting on a play in the jail and getting the jailbirds to play the parts in the jail. Um, it's like the ideal of every uh, theater teacher uh, in America, right? And I know this because I am a theater teacher in America. Like most of us, you know, like uh, this idea that you would go into a county lockup and put on West Side Story with the inmates. I, that, I think that's a specific example. I saw 60 Minutes where they did that. Maybe I did. Was that West Side Story? It was something. Um, anyway, he tells the story of Alonzo Quijano wanting to be Don Quixote. And um, I just like these lines where he says he broods. The old man is uh, can't understand all the horribleness in the world. He broods and broods and broods and broods. And finally, his brains dry up. And then he lays down the melancholy burden of sanity. And then he decides he's a knight. And then that's where we get this, uh, I guess it's the opening number, the uh, uh, I, Don Quixote. I am I, Don Quixote, the Lord of La Mancha. It's uh, a great song. And the rhythm is in nearly every song in this. And I don't know what you would call this. Is a, It's a uh, contratiempo. Is it a, is this flamenco? I don't know. It's the, you know, it's a da 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 Two minutes into their sallying forth, uh, Don Quixote decides to tilt at a windmill, which is the one of the primary idioms that we get from Don Quixote. Tilting at windmills, meaning that you're doing uh, something that's uh, naive and uh, unwinnable, I guess. Um, just like this podcast, I'm tilting at a windmill. Uh, it's chaotic, quixotic. I, I know that you probably pronounce that chaotic, but I wish it was quixotic because that sounds like exotic. Anyway, um, it's actually kind of perfect to have a really serious actor like Peter O'Toole in this role because the rest of it is all kind of light and silly, uh, right? Or it's not um, like I, th I think that the musical does not present itself as high art. It kind of says, OK, this is a Broadway musical with some brassiness to it. And so to have all these guys, you know, playing these muleteers and prisoners uh, and just everybody being sort of like, hey, hey, and then having this really fucking intense Peter O'Toole, uh, it works very nicely. Peter O'Toole's performance in this, especially in the, when he's uh, Don Quixote, it reminds me of my dad and it makes me emotional. I guess because I watched this with my dad 
but also, um, you know, my dad, when he was older and sick uh, with Parkinson's, he, he had a Peter O'Toole as Don Quixote energy to him. Uh, you know, when he, when Peter O'Toole uh, gets uh, real intense and emotional in this, it's like like when my dad would get wired on his Parkinson's medication. Um, I realize that I am kind of the so Sancho Panza, who is the guy. It's just a squire, and the thing about Sancho that's funny is, and James Coco is very good as Sancho in the movie. I don't know much else about James Coco and his life after this. But the thing with Sancho is he's like, I'll go along with them. I'm fucking, I'm game. I'm his squire. I'm his friend. Um, but then all the way through, like right at the beginning, he's like, what are you doing? It's a windmill. Oh, God, what are you doing? No, stop. Oh, geez. <laughs> and I feel like I am Sancho Panza in the jobs that I work. Like everywhere that I've worked in my life has been for a psychopath uh, that's like running things into the ground. <laughs> Uh, and even like, I, even when I, I, there, I had, when I worked for my dad, when my dad was losing his mind and I was, uh, handling his business for him, that's what it was like. I, I was his Sancho Panza as he fucking like, uh, raged through, uh, the, the grocery store and, uh, yelled at the deli counter people. I had to be like, Oh, sire, don't do that. <laughs> And, uh, you know, and uh, yeah, whatever. So we get to the end. We meet Aldonza, played by Sophia Loren. Um, practically unbelievable how gorgeous she is in this film. Uh, I'm not, you know, I, and that's not all that matters. I mean, she's okay in it. Her singing voice is, it's like not much of a singing voice. Uh, and she does a talk sing situation. And I don't know why they didn't double her voice. Maybe they double his. Maybe they tried and then it didn't work. I don't know. But, um, oh, God. Should I mention what my dad said about Sophia Loren in this? It's really fucking offensive. Um, if you are easily triggered uh, by offensive things that are both sexual and racist, please, uh, you, you probably have a 30 second ahead skip button. I'm going to ask you to press that right. Now, um, my dad talking about Sophia Loren said that uh, he asked, he wondered if her vagina tasted like olive oil. And then he cracked up at the joke that he made. Uh, he thought that was the funniest thing ever. Uh, my dad was not known for his humor, uh, but he said that and it was shocking. And it's hard not to think about that. Every time I uh, think about Sophia Loren or olive oil or vaginas. So, yeah, uh, the song, It's All the Same. Yeah, it doesn't really matter that she can't sing that well. But it does seem like she does care a little too much. She's singing about how she doesn't care and she seems like she cares a little bit. <laughs> and it's all like, uh, you know, it is a terrible life that she's living here. That she's, You have to fuck all these mule drivers for money and also be their waitress. And they're so sweaty. These guys are all so sweaty, these mule drivers. It's unclear why they're all, like, living in that fucking inn. Don't they have mules to drive? They eventually leave, all of them, I guess. But they're there for a while. Uh, is it like the Florida Project situation where they live in the fucking inn? 
All of those actors, by the way, if you watch the credits, they all have Italian last names. There's a lot of Italians in this playing uh, Spaniards. And so, yeah, they're driving mules for a living. And then Pedro is the head of them. Very, very sweaty man named Pedro. And when Aldonza won't have sex with him right away, he's like, uh, my mules are not as stubborn. And it made me wonder, are mules really stubborn or do they get a bad rap? And sure enough, I looked it up. No, mules aren't stubborn. They're less stubborn and more intelligent than donkeys. So that sucks. Hashtag justice for mules. Don Quixote and his boy come into the inn and, you know, they think it's a castle or he does. And then he sees Aldonza and he's like, oh, sweet lady, fair virgin. And then the guys all laugh. And then he sings Dulcinea. He decides her name is Dulcinea, not Aldonza. And Dulcinea is a beautiful song with a beautiful melody. I like this song a lot. And guess what? They do the take back your mink trick on that, where they do it one time slow, one time fast. Where Don Quixote sings it slow, and then uh, it's a love song, and then the muleteers sing it uh, upbeat, making fun of her. Uh, here's the problem. So here's the problem with casting Sophia Loren as this part. She's clearly Dulcinea. She's disturbingly beautiful. He's right. They're wrong. She is, uh, you know, she is quite clearly uh, exceptionally uh, beautiful. <laughs> like it'd be one thing if we saw... Uh, in the movie they showed us a giant instead of the windmill or they showed us Gossamer instead of the shitty old rag that he thinks is Gossamer but the narrative is showing us the things as they are and we're just uh, he's telling us how he sees them so wouldn't it make sense for Aldonza to be more plain it doesn't make sense for her to make, be the most beautiful woman who ever lived uh, it gets to we, we we're introduced to the niece and the what is it the housekeeper what is that and then the padre they sing, I'm only thinking of him. I'm only thinking of him. A kick-ass song, a trio, shortened in the movie. It's a shame. I like that song a lot. Yeah, and it's like, yeah, this is, it, it's a great musical theater song. It does a, it introduces these characters. It tells you what their motivation is and what they want to be believed about them. Uh, and these are, you know, first-timers, man. This is like Anais Mitchell of Town. They got it right in the first try. Good job, guys. <laughs> uh, where was I? So, and then we meet Carrasco. Um, I think they make a smart decision in the movie to have that character not sing because he's the anti-artist. And he's played in the entertainment charade by the guy, the prisoner that's hanging out uh, who hates artists and doesn't like art. And he says when... When uh, Cervantes is talking about uh, entertaining, he says, the word is divert, not entertain, something like that. Um, and the idea that all these people are doing such a good job playing their parts, the, these prisoners, you know, you have to suspend your disbelief a little bit. It's a fucking musical. Uh, there's a scene where Sancho brings a missive to her, uh, and it's Sancho's big scene. He sings the missive, the letter to her, uh, a cappella, which is smart. I like that. It works really well. But then he sings a song not a cappella called I Really Like Him. Uh, she asks him the million-dollar question. What the fuck are you doing following this guy around? Why would you do that? Um, it's worth listening to Mandy Patinkin's version of this because, you know, with his quasi-offensive accent, 
it's it's basically for everybody that loved his impression of a Spanish person in uh, the song Rainbow Tour in Evita. You get to see him uh, expand on that in the uh, operatic uh, whatever of this. But James Coco, of course, does a nice job on these songs and on everything. We meet the barber. This fucking barber comes in. He's annoying. He's not funny. And it's weird to have a song that starts with, Oh, I am a happy barber and I go my merry way. It's weird to have that actually be the first line of a song. And the barber is played by some guy that had a recurring role on Three's Company. And I feel hostile towards this man because he, it feels like the movie is telling me that he is the, the clown and the comic relief. But I find him uh, very unfunny. And he th- he's got a shaving basin on his head. And Don Quixote thinks that that is the golden helmet of Mambrino. And he takes it back from him. And sings, golden helmet of Mambrino, there can be no helm like thee. <laughs> I've never read the book, but you get the sense that they're cherry-picking some episodes, right? Uh, anyway, uh, a man, so the one thing that uh, Carrasco uh, says is, uh, a man who chooses to be mad can also choose to be sane. I think that's uh, extremely incorrect. And uh, I don't care to tell you why. <laughs> Just suffice to say, I don't think that's true. A uh, man who chooses to be mad, maybe he cannot then choose to be sane. So don't choose to be mad, anybody. The, the, the door might shut behind you. The movie cuts some songs. Uh, what Does He Want of Me? Another Aldanza song. And To Each His Dulcinea, sung by the priest. We could do fine without him. They leave in an inexplicable song called Little Bird, Little Bird. Did they just have that in the trunk? Somebody's trunk? Mitch Lee? Like, did he already write that song? Little bird, little bird in the cinnamon tree. Like a couple of the mule guys sing it for no reason. It's a song about a bird in the middle of the fucking show for no reason. Anyway, The Impossible Dream comes in. That's the hit. That's great. Uh, and then after he sings it to her, she says, please just once see me as I am. And then he says, I see only beauty. Yeah, so do the rest of us. She's fucking beautiful. Anyway, he has a fight with Pedro and Pedro goes down real easily. You just got to strike him with a stick real quick. And then he says, I am killed. (laughs) And he and Sancho, uh, Don Quixote and Sancho and Aldonza beat the shit out of all the mule guys. And then there's a nice moment at the end where he says, victory. And then she's like, victory. And they're all like, victory. And then they're all homies. They're all a a trio, triumvirate. The innkeeper comes in and the innkeeper has promised to um, knight him or to, what do you call it? Dub him something? Dub him as knight. And they sing, hail knight of the woeful countenance, knight of the woeful countenance. Then there's a very disturbing sequence called the abduction, but we know what it really is. It's a gang rape. The mule guys decide to, we, we're mad at Aldonza and we're all going to do a choreograph, choreographed rape of her, or at least begin to rape her choreography-wise. There's a break in the story. The inqui- you know, We go back to the prison. There, oh, the story gets interrupted because the Inquisition is coming to take a guy. They think it might be uh, Cervantes. That's not someone else. But then Peter O'Toole gives a killer monologue, uh, which really does seem out of place in a musical, but I'm not mad at it because it's so good and the acting is so good. 
And then it gets back to the story. Uh, he and Sancho are sallying forth again. Uh, and they come upon Aldonza. He's sort of uh, crumbled in the corner of the fucking desert or whatever it is. Uh, because they threw her out after they had their way with her. And she sings a song that is a banger. It's called Aldonza. Aldonza the song. Aldonza has all the best songs, the character. And this is the best one of hers. And they shortened it for the movie and, and made it start in the middle of a sentence, bizarrely. For a lady has modest and maidenly airs. Weird. And at this point, the fucking contratiempo is worn a little bit thin. Because on this one, it's like, isn't this the same fucking song over again? And then he's like, you were um, Dulcinea now and forever. She goes, no! <laughs> and then a bunch of fake knights come in. Uh, wearing night outfits that I think are very cool. I think I liked knights when I was a kid, and I dressed up like one for Halloween. My grandmother made the costume. And the whole thing that the guy does, and this again is Carrasco, the husband of the niece. He wants to, uh, to show this guy that he's crazy and not a knight. He says, "I." he tells him, I am the, you have to do battle with me. I am the knight of the mirrors. And then they all take out these mirrors. Look at the mirror. See things as they really are. You are not a knight. You're an old fool. Look in the mirror. Now, this seems a little bit lame, right? That that would cure him. That seems a little who, like of the who's Tommy, where the doctor prescribes a mirror for your insanity. But let me tell you something. This is the early 17th century here. And mirrors play a very different role, don't they? Nowadays, we are surrounded by mirrors. We got one in our bathroom. We got one in our fucking living room on our way out the door. We got one on our phone. We can do, we, we're, we're, we're looking at ourselves way more than God ever intended. A mirror, or back in those days, was not that common. And if you caught a glimpse of yourself in a lake... It was a big moment for you. You'd be like, oh, fuck, that's what I look like. But when that wasn't happening, which was most of the time, you were just a fucking Cartesian head in a jar. So if you think about that, it makes a little bit more sense that you would really fuck him up by making him see himself in a mirror. Uh, so he's all laid up in a bed. He's uh, almost dead there. And uh, Sancho comes in. He wants to see him. And they add a very unnecessary song called... Uh, it's not unnecessary. It's fine. I like a little gossip, a little chat, a little idle, idle talk, this and that. Because you want to give our boy Poncho another song. Poncho? Sancho. You want to give him another song because we like him. And then Don Quixote, uh, but now he's just Alonzo Quijana. He's just an old fucking guy that doesn't think he's a knight anymore. He calls Sancho a fat pudding stuffed with proverbs. That's Sancho's thing. He's always to sing proverbs. Now, he starts making out his will, right? Because he's not crazy anymore. He thinks he is who he is. And then Aldonza breaks her way in. And uh, much like the uh, tear-jerking scene towards the end of Coco, Pixar's Coco, where he gets the old woman to remember and uh, she starts uh, squirting tears out, that basically happens here. And uh, he, she, she starts singing uh, Dulcinea to him. And, man, Peter O'Toole's performance in this final scene is brilliant and devastating. Like, his eyes are red with tears. And then he says, and perhaps it was not 
a dream. And then he's like, oh, what is sickness to a knight? What matter wounds, Sancho? And then James Coco is like, hear your grace. And then they all fucking sing I, Don Quixote together, those three. And it, uh, it really gives you chills. It's beautiful. And then, boom, he dies. But he died doing what he loved, singing a song about what a great knight he is. And then the story's over, and the Inquisition calls Cervantes up. Uh, you know, in real life, the Spanish Inquisition just detained Miguel de Cervantes. And then uh, when they finally called him before, they really just excommunicated him from the Catholic Church, which is like, cool, thank you, and get me out of this. This sucks. <laughs> Apologies to my Catholic listeners. Your religion is wrong. Sorry. Just kidding. It isn't. Maybe it is. Hey, but that's the whole point of the story is uh, tell yourself a story and live it. Uh, the story that I'm telling myself is that I don't care for the Catholics and I don't want to be one. And if you're telling yourself the opposite story, then good luck to, uh, with that. Um, logically, I don't really understand why the, the Carrasco, the niece's husband, wanted him to come home. Because they, they suggest that he's, has a, he's self-interested, that he, you know, all of the money is going to go to him when this guy dies. Isn't it more likely for him to die sooner if he's out there trying to be a knight than it is being an old man in a bed? Anyway, this could be something I'm not understanding and it's something I'm getting wrong. Holy shit, I, this episode is not that long, guys. It's an hour 40 right now and we're ending it because we got to the end of Man of La Mancha and it is now past midnight here in Vietnam, California. I have to come up with a final line here for you guys to sign off this podcast. Uh, I'm going to put it on pause because I don't have one ready. Please hold. All right, here we go. Uh, and the people all said, shut up. Shut up. We're ending the pod. The people all said, shut up. Shut up. We're ending the pod. Shut up. We're ending. Shut up. Shut up. Shut up. We're ending the pod. Shut up. We're ending. Shut up. Shut up. Shut up. We're ending the pod. Shut up. We're ending the pod. Thank you very much, folks, for listening to I Need You to Like Musicals. That's all for now. And until next week. Onward to glory I go! Dun, 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 dun.